You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Hey Kensington, we're here at Three North Vines for our final week of Vine and Grapes, where we've been talking about vineyards, growing vines, healthy grapes, and today we are going to talk about harvesting and what it takes to process the grapes. And once again, we have our friend Christy here from Croswell, Michigan, to tell us more about it. So, we have grown the grapes, it's been all season long, it's time to harvest. What does that look like? So we do all of our work in the vineyard pretty much by hand, so we have to get people to come in and use their pruning shears. Ooh, ooh. Ooh, just literally by hand. By hand, out there. They're literally out there. Wow. Oh, they're spring action though, let me see these bad boys. Be careful, don't cut your finger. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, the shirt. Look at that, spring action. Wow, but still, that's a lot of work. Yeah, do you get cramps like, like, major, seriously, like all the way just, up? Hopefully, <laughs> we get enough people. It'll only take us a few hours. Oh, only a few hours. Oh, uh, okay. only a few hours so, of going like this. Oh, that yeah. way you collect the grapes in. Yep. So okay. these are 36-pound lugs. So they hold about 36 pounds of grapes if they're full. Wow. Um, wow that's and a so lot. they will let them drop right into here, hopefully. Okay. Wow. So, okay, so then they go to the yellow bin, then what so, happens? So they go to the yellow bin, and people are out there picking away, and then we'll have somebody on a, a small tractor, smaller than the tractor we saw earlier, yeah. running around and picking up the lugs with a little trailer, bringing them up here to where we're at right now. This is where we start the crushing process. This is where we really start getting into to making the wine. So we bring them up, we weigh them, we wash them, we visually inspect them. Hopefully we know we've done a good job, so we know we don't have too much of that work to do. Yeah, no vinegar smell. No vinegar yeah. smell. Yeah, 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 yeah. So How are you washing them? Is it just like sprinkler hosing it down? Are you doing it one by one with a little baby washcloth? No, a little tiny brushes. No, we we uh, we just baby brushes. We have a hose and we just kind of spray them down. Okay. Okay. And then they go into our crusher stemmer, which is a big machine that takes the grapes and kind of they go through these um the gears like this and it kind of breaks the grapes open and then it kicks the stems out the other end. So at the end we have just grape skin seeds and all the juice from the grapes. This, this is, is the press. press. All right. Yes. So how does this thing work? Where yeah. do my feet go? <laughs> well, yes. that's for fun that we do not when we're doing grape. Okay. Um, so how does this thing work? So we would load in probably about 8 to 10 gallons of must, which is the crushed up grapes. Must? That's must. what my 13-year-old has right now. <laughs> so must. And then when we get it all in there, we put these big heavy wood covers on the top right here yeah and we ratchet this piece down to about here so so we reduce the volume at least by half okay and then by the end hopefully we've gotten all the juice out the juice is flowing out here into a bucket that we collect and And the skins stay in here the skins and seeds all stay here okay so we're going to end with a competition oh here i've brought some grapes here we're catching the whole we're just no we're just going to take one throw it up and whoever catches it first wins all right. You didn't say how high do we have to throw it. Oh, just over your head at least. Oh my Ready? One, two, three. Oh, it's not even. <laughs> Come on, man. Champion right here. Christy, thank you so much for taking time teaching us everything you yes. know about all things vineyard, all vineyard. things grapes. It's been an awesome process. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you for educating all of us in the process. Yeah, thank you so much.
I'm really grateful for Sam and Shauna and Christy as well, because let me say that as we've gone throughout this series, I have learned more about grapes and vineyards and the whole process than I ever thought I would. And I hope you have as well, because it really is amazing in that everything that it actually requires to produce good fruit and good grapes, because you go from the planting and then you go from the growing and to actually grow a grape requires so much. And then as we learn today, the harvesting and the crushing as well, it really is an amazing process. And if it's done correctly, it has the potential to produce good fruit. And as we've been talking about in this series, this is what God desires for your life and mine, for us to produce good fruit, not only for our benefit, but also for the benefit of the people and the world around us. And we learned about this in the very first week, but it probably takes about three years to go from the planting stage all the way to the harvesting stage. And so if you're thinking about getting into the grape or wine or vineyard business, let me tell you, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme because it takes a long time. And so it requires the vine dresser to have qualities like patience and love. And also, as we're going to be talking about today, faithfulness, gentleness, and some self-control as well. And so that's where we're headed today. But before we actually continue on, or as we actually continue on, something else that we want to do in this service is we also want to receive our offering for today. And so ushers, I want to invite you to come forward to receive that for the day. And we're in this whole mode of celebration today. And so something else that we want to celebrate that happened all throughout this week in this building is that we had about 180 children running around everywhere this week, inside, outside, because Spring Hill Day Camps was here. And let me tell you, for so many of these children, they came from different campuses, but at the same time, many came from our local community as well. And they had fun, they, they laughed, they did the Euro bungee. I don't even, still to this day, I don't even know what that is, but I heard a lot about that. They climbed the rock wall, and there was a ton of fun and laughter that happened. But at the same time, probably the most important thing is, is that for Every one of these children, they heard about the hope and the love and the power of Jesus. And for some of these children, for the very first time. And the reason why we're able to put on camps like this and events like this, where we're able to invest in the next generation, is because of your generosity. And so when we financially partner together, one of the things is, is that we're able to make this investment into our children and our students as well. And so we want to say thank you for that. And so if you'd like to partner with us, there are a number of ways that we can do so. And you see the offering bags coming around. And you also see on the side screens, because most of our people give electronically, we can scan the QR code. We can text the word Kensington to 77977. We can give via the app or the website as well. But if you are somebody who does give, thank you for your generosity and thank you for your open-handedness. And as I was thinking about today... There was a Saturday Night Live sketch that came to mind. And just by a quick show of hands, how many of you are fans of Saturday Night Live? Anyone? Okay, a lot more than the 9 a.m. crowd. And so I stopped watching a handful of years ago, but I saw this sketch, and every time I watch it on YouTube, I just laugh uncontrollably because I think it's so funny. And it happened back in 2019, and it's where Adam Sandler was promoting vacation packages to Italy. And in this sort of, and it's a spoof of other commercials that have been done. But this is the thing, that in this sketch, what he does is that he talks about all the amazing experiences that one could have if you actually take this trip. All the delicious food that someone could eat, the history that you can learn, and all the places that someone can go, like places like Venice and the Tower of Pisa. But frustrated by some of the negative reviews that people shared, saying that they were disappointed by the trip, 
and they didn't have as much fun as they thought they would. He tries to make it crystal clear what people, what this trip can and cannot do for people. And so he says at the very beginning, if you come on this trip, we will take you hiking, but we cannot turn you into a person who likes hiking. We can take you to the Italian Riviera, but we cannot make you comfortable in a swimsuit. And we can provide you with a zip line, but we can't give you the ability to say, we, and actually mean it. And so this is what he says. And honestly, I wish I could show this to you because it's just so funny, but because of copyright restrictions, we can't. And then he, some, he says something so profound because he says the reason why this cannot happen is because you're still going to be you on vacation. And so if you're sad where you are right now and you get on a plane to Italy, you in Italy will be the same sad you just in a new place. Right? That's what it is. And so again, if you've never seen it, check it out. I actually posted the link in our Troy Facebook group and very, like two people saw it. And so the link is there if you want to see it. But one of the reasons why this is so funny is because it's based in truth. Because for so many of us, we try to find happiness, satisfaction, purpose, and meaning in the things that we have out here. In that we think, you know what, if I just get that job or that promotion, if I just buy that house or drive that car or go on that vacation to Italy, if I just marry that person and have those kids, then I'll be satisfied and then my life will have meaning. And for every single one of us, we have gotten some of the things that we have chased after in life. And what has happened is, is that maybe for a few days, maybe for a few weeks, we were happy that we felt fulfilled. But then what ultimately happened is that that emptiness returned. And then we went and we started chasing after the next thing that we thought would fill that void. And today, as I mentioned, we're in the fifth and final week of this series, Vine and Grapes, where we're looking at this metaphor of a vineyard Jesus used to explain some of the most important aspects of what it means to follow him. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus identified God as the vine dresser or the, the gardener, himself as the vine, and us as the branches. And he tells us that when we are connected to him, when we're continually connected to him, that we will flourish and thrive because we will experience the fruit of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we'll experience these qualities not just for a handful of days or a few weeks, but as long as we're connected to him. And these qualities, they paint a picture of how we were created to be and how we were created to live as human beings. And so we've looked at the first six in the previous two weeks. And so today we're going to wrap things up by looking at the final three, which are faithfulness, gentleness, as well as self-control. And the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses for faithfulness is what it means is, is it means to be devoted, to be loyal. It's someone who's true to their words, someone who can be relied upon. And I love the picture that this one author painted of what faithfulness is. Is that he says, he describes it as love hanging on. It's having the mindset, it's having the attitude that no matter what happens in life, no matter the challenges, the disappointments, or the difficulties that we may face, that we will never give up and that we will never ever let go. It's love hanging on. It's a beautiful and it's a powerful picture. And when I think about this quality of faithfulness, Somebody I immediately think of is somebody who we're introduced to in the Old Testament. And his name was Joseph. And maybe some of us know his story. And Joseph had a lot of brothers. But the problem with his brothers was they all hated Joseph. 
So much so, and it wasn't just like this little hate. It was like a really, really big hate because they wanted to kill him, and that was their plan. But at the last minute, they changed their plans, and they decided to sell him into slavery instead, And which is actually better than murder when you think about it. Murder, selling into slavery, let's go with that one. So that's what they decided. And this actually took Joseph to Egypt. And in Egypt, he was sold once again, this time to a man named Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's officials. And so at this point in Joseph's life, he found himself in a place that he didn't want to be, not only in terms of physical location, but also in terms of position. Because he was far away from home, stuck in a foreign country. But at the same time, Joseph had lived a very, very privileged life up to that point, And now he found himself as a slave. But he still chose to be faithful in that he worked hard. He was honest. He was responsible. And he gave his very, very best. And his boss, Potiphar, noticed and eventually elevated him and gave him control, basically allowed him to oversee everything in his estate. And the only thing that Joseph didn't have to be concerned about was Potiphar's wife. But unfortunately for Joseph, Potiphar's wife became concerned about him and tried to sleep with him. But once again, he did the right thing and he ran away. But she lied and she accused him of sexual assault. And what, did Joseph, what happened to Joseph? He found himself thrown into prison. And so once again, he is in a situation that he did not want to be in. But once again, what did he do? He chose to be faithful. And the warden put him in, eventually put him in charge of the entire prison. And Joseph spent a number of years in that prison. And he, but he eventually got out. And when he got out, he became the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. The second most powerful person in the entire world. And a number of years later... That region of the world, it experienced a severe famine. But it was because of Joseph's faithfulness to God that so many people's lives were spared. And if we actually hear Joseph's story, if you've ever read Joseph's story, you understand that there's a happy ending. He ultimately is also reunited with his family and is beautiful and it's incredible. But can you imagine being Joseph in those formative years when everything seemed like it was going south? Because imagine being sold into slavery by your family, right? And imagine, you think you have it bad, right? Imagine that happening to you. Imagine being stuck in a foreign country. Imagine being convicted of a crime that you never committed and then having to spend years of your life wasting away in prison. And if I was Joseph, I probably would have wanted to give up on God and he probably felt the same at so many moments in his life. But in spite of the challenges, the difficulties, and the disappointments, he kept hanging on. It's that picture of faithfulness that we talked about earlier. It's love hanging on. And because he did, God not only transformed his life, but also used him to transform the lives of so many others. And as I was thinking about faithfulness this week, there were so many stories that I was reminded of, so many people that I was reminded of who exhibited, who have exhibited this quality. But I also read a story this past week that really impacted me. And it was something that happened decades ago. And it involved a former U.S. Senator, Mark Hatfield, and when he was touring Calcutta with Mother Teresa. And on this tour, they visited a lot of different places. One of the places that they visited was called House of the Dying. Imagine going to a place like that. And it's where children were loved and cared for during the last moments of their life. They also went to a place called the dispensary, where the poor would line up by the hundreds seeking medical care. And as they were going around the city, what Senator Hatfield saw Mother Teresa do over and over and over again was that she saw people who had need, needs, 
but she didn't just walk past them, but she stopped for so many of them and fed them and nurtured them and helped them and nursed them and loved them in this way. And he had never been in this type of environment before. And so the senator, when he oftentimes he looked around, he said that he felt so incredibly overwhelmed by all the need and the suffering that was around him. And at one point, he turned to Mother Teresa and asked her, don't you ever get discouraged when you see all of this poverty around you and you realize that you can't really do much about it? And after, when Mother Teresa heard that statement and that question, she turned to the senator and only as only she could do, she said to him, my dear senator, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. And that is such a powerful, powerful statement. And what Mother Teresa had was that she had God's value system because God isn't primarily interested in our success, or at least as the world sees it. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he doesn't really care about the size of our bank account or the awards or the accolades that we receive, the title that we have at work or whether we have a corner office or not. He doesn't care about the vacations that we necessarily go on or all the toys that we have. But what he's primarily concerned about is whether we are actually faithful to him. And so this is the question that I want to ask all of us today. In the places and in the, in amongst the people that we find ourselves right now at this moment in life, what does it actually look like for us to be faithful? What does it actually look like for us to love and serve and to give our best, not only to God, but also to the people around us? And something that I recognize is that for some of us, maybe for many of us in certain parts of our life, we're not where we want to be. Maybe we want to be married. Maybe for others of us, we're so unhappy in our marriage. Maybe still for others of us, we hate our job, can't stand our boss. Maybe still for others of us, we're searching for purpose and meaning in life and we're really, really struggling. But regardless of whether we're in a terrific place or a terrible place, and most of us are probably in between, where we are right now, what does it look like for us to be faithful? Because that's what we see with Joseph's story. He found himself in amazing places, but also at rock bottom. And every single time what we see in his story is that he was faithful, 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 hanging on to God and continuing to lean in. What would it look like for us to do the same? But in addition to being faithful, faithfulness, the next quality is gentleness. And in the New Testament book of Galatians, the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses for gentleness is what it is, is that it's to really, it's to have strength. It's to be resilient. It's to lead with humility, kindness, as well as compassion. And for some of us, when we think about gentleness, we may think of weakness. But somebody who is gentle isn't a doormat. It's not someone who gets walked all over all the time. But what gentleness is, is that it's being rock solid on the inside, but yet being soft on the outside. And someone who was gentle was Jesus. He actually self-identifies as this. And he actually says in the New Testament book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And he says this, for I am gentle. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you've ever read the Gospels, or if you know anything about Jesus, no one, no one could accuse Jesus of being weak. 
Because inside, he was this. He was gentle. He was rock solid, unwavering, uncompromising in the mission that God had given, in the work that God had given him to do. He was laser focused. And anyone who tried to take him off, a tra- off that track, he actually pushed back. And he had no problems doing that. But at the same time, on the outside, he led with humility, kindness, compassion, and he was soft, which allowed people to be drawn to him. People who were marginalized, poor, and in need, they came in droves to him because this is who he was. And John Wooden was a Hall of Fame basketball coach. And he tells a story one time of a moment in his life that he saw gentleness play out in front of him. And it was his dad. It was a moment that he had with his dad. And John Wooden grew up on a farm in Indiana where there were a lot of gravel pits around. And so what the local county would do is that they would hire farmers to actually go into these pits with their horses to haul out this gravel. But sometimes the horses would struggle because if you can imagine, some of these wagons that were filled with gravel were really, really heavy. And some of these pits were really deep. And so imagine a horse or a handful of horses trying to pull out a heavy wagon up a steep hill. And that steep hill is like wet sand. And so sometimes there was a lot of struggle, a lot of challenge involved. And one day, on one hot summer day, there was a young farmer, and he was trying to get two of his horses to pull out a heavy wagon, but his, but his horses were struggling. And so he was angry at them, and he was whipping them, he was yelling at them, he was cursing at them. And John Wooden saw his father observing this farmer from afar and allowing the situation to sort of play out. And after a short period of time, John Wooden's dad went over to this young farmer and said to him, why don't, why don't you let me take them for you? And so he did. And so John Wooden's father walked over to these horses and started softly talking to them, almost whispering. And while he was doing this, he gently was stroking their noses, which calmed them down. And then he slowly stepped in front of them and he whistled to indicate that it was time for them to move forward. And within moments, moments, they had pulled that wagon out of that pit. And John Wooden said that he learned an incredibly important lesson that day from his father. And this is what he says. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act like that angry young farmer who lost control. So much more can usually be accomplished by dad's calm, confident, and steady approach. It takes strength inside to be gentle on the outside. Gentleness is an incredibly powerful life principle. And it's also an incredibly important leadership principle. And something that I recognize about every single one of us here in the room and watching on stream is that we are all leaders, every single one of us in some area of our life. It may be in our family, maybe it's in our neighborhood, maybe amongst our friends, maybe here in this church community, maybe at work, but we are all leaders. And as leaders, what would it look like if we actually led with this, if we actually led with gentleness? Because as I mentioned, gentleness is not weakness. And as John Wooden said, it actually takes more strength to lead like this than to lead in the way of harshness and being a jerk and all of these kinds of things. Because that's the opposite of what gentleness is. And when we actually choose to live and love and lead like this, gentleness is so powerful. It has the ability to shift rooms, to transform cultures, and also to change lives. And let me also say this about gentleness, because as I mentioned, the opposite of gentleness includes things like pride and harshness, bullying, and just being a jerk, as I said. And unfortunately, we live in a world where so much of our public discourse has devolved into this. And in, some, in so many ways, it seems like we've forgotten how, that we can, how we can actually talk 
to one another about important issues without insulting the other person or thinking negatively about them. It seems like we've forgotten how we can disagree with one another, yet love one another. And next year, there's something very, very important happening in our nation, which I know that all of us probably know about, is that there's a national election that's happening. And I feel like if we are a Jesus follower, this is an incredibly important opportunity that we have to communicate who Jesus is to the world. But the question is, how will we actually live and how will we actually lead? Will we be like so many other people in our nation and around us? So many people that I have seen. And sometimes it's easy to get sucked into this, where we call each other names, where we cancel people who disagree with us. Or will we actually choose a different way and actually choose to love and live and lead with gentleness? Because gentleness truly transforms and we see it in Jesus' life and so many other people's lives as well. And so there's faithfulness, there's gentleness, but also the last quality of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And what self-control communicates is, what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us, is that self-control is to have control over one's passions and desires. is to be able to exercise moderation and constraint and the ability also to say no. And King Solomon He's, his story and his life is found in the Old Testament. But King Solomon was the third king of the nation of Israel and also widely regarded to be one of the wisest human beings to have ever lived in human history. And in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, he actually gives us a picture as to what self-control is. And this is what he says. He says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. That's what he says. And back in Solomon's day, and he lived centuries, he lived millenniums ago. Back in Solomon's day, the city walls were the primary line of defense and protection for the people inside the city against one's enemies. And so if you did not have a city wall protecting you, you were up a creek. You were going to be in big, big trouble. And that's what Solomon says self-control is like. It's like city walls around us that protect us from the dangers and the temptations of life. And I grew up in a predominantly Asian-American environment. And, and physical appearance in so many Asian cultures is very, very important, including being thin. Being thin. But my problem was, was that growing up, I was overweight. And kids can be, and we all know this, kids can be so mean. And so growing up, other students in my school, they would come up to me, not a lot, but enough, that they would come up to me and say terrible things to me. And they would say things like, why are you so fat? Why are you so obese? And I would hear this. And when people would say this to me, I would just try to laugh it off so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't know how much they hurt me. And at first, I didn't believe them. But as I heard this, more and more I began to internalize it because I started thinking that if these people are saying it, then it must be true. And so from a young age, I started struggling with body image. And I started working out like crazy. I started even skipping meals. And I felt like if I ever, I felt like I could never ever miss a workout because if I did, I would go back to being that overweight chubby kid again. And I remember when I was in my early 20s, I was working uh, for a, I was working down in Texas and I was working at a summer day camp and we would be working crazy hours. We're talking like 14, 16 hour days, Monday to Friday. And one day, after a long week and after a really, really long day, I was exhausted. But rather than going home, I went to the gym. 
And I remember sitting in that gym, and it was dark because I was the only one there looking up at the clock, and it was 12.30 at night. And I'm trying to lift weights, but I was so tired I could barely do it. And I looked at the mirror, in fr- I looked at myself in the mirror in front of me, and I said to myself, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And it was the very first time that I began to recognize that this might be a problem in my life, that I didn't have control over this area of my life. And it wasn't the exercise, it wasn't the working out per se, because that's just a symptom, that's just what's up here. But it was everything that was underneath. It was the thing beneath the thing. How I viewed myself was totally broken and my value and my worth in the eyes of God. It was completely distorted. And when it comes to things like exercise, work, money, food, and alcohol, these are not bad things in and of themselves. In, many, in, in a lot of ways, they're good things. They're amazing things, beautiful things, gifts that God has given us, not for our benefit and for our enjoyment. But the problem comes when we overconsume and when we overindulge, when we begin to no longer have control over these things, but these things begin to have control over us. And what self-control is, as Solomon said, they function as the walls around us to protect us from becoming slaves to the things in our lives that could actually harm us. That's what self-control is. And if we've learned anything from this series, my hope is, is that we would remember that these qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, that we can't produce them because they're called the fruit of the Spirit. And so we can't produce them in our lives by trying really, really hard to be better human beings. But the only way that it comes about is acknowledging and releasing control of our lives to the Holy Spirit and allow him, allowing him to work in our lives. And this is the case with self-control as well. And we actually see this in the first three steps of Celebrate Recovery. And these are the first three steps if you're not familiar with them. The very first step of Celebrate Recovery is we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. And it's a recognition that we cannot fix things by ourselves. And the second step is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's believing that we need the Holy Spirit. And then the third step is we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. It's surrendering our lives over to him. And this is the thing, this last quality of the fruit of the Spirit. If we want to grow in this area, these are great ways. These are things that we can pray about. And these are steps that we can take to begin the journey of inviting the Holy Spirit to begin to work and to produce not just self-control in us, but all of these qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. And in this series, we've talked a lot about what it actually looks like to cultivate good grapes, how to grow them. But something that we all know, whether we have been to a vineyard or not, is that the vine dresser or the gardener, that person cannot create the grapes. It is absolutely impossible. They can't do it. The only one, the only thing that can actually create grapes is the vine, is the grapevine itself. Because what the vine dresser can do and the job and the role and the responsibility of a vine dresser isn't to create it because he or she can't, but rather it's to cultivate and to create an environment in which these grapes can grow and thrive and flourish. And when we actually think about it, that's exactly our role in regards to the fruit of the Spirit as well. Because we can't create these qualities in our life. We can't will ourselves to produce them because that's only something that the Holy Spirit can do. But what our role is, 
is to create an environment, to cultivate an environment where this fruit can grow, where it can flourish, and where it could experience, where it can experience life and more and more and more. And so the question that I have for all of us is, is that when we actually look at our life, what environment are we cultivating? Is it one where these qualities can grow and where the Holy Spirit can work, where we're producing actually good fruit? Or is it something else? And if we want to answer that question, all we have to do is look at the byproduct of our life. What is actually coming out of our life? Is it these qualities? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? When we look, even at this past week, is that how we have operated? Is that how we have lived? Because if these things are coming out more often than not, then we can know that the life that we are living and the environment that we are leaning into and growing are ones where the Holy Spirit is working and able to produce this. But if it's not, that also answers a very important question for us. But this is the thing. If we're at a place where we actually look at the byproduct of our life, the fruit of our life, and we're like, you know what, I don't like that. Because what I'm actually putting out into the world isn't patience, but rather impatience. I don't experience joy, but misery. I don't have self-control, but I have all of these addictions in my life. And if you look at your life, and that is, and we look at our life, and that's what it is. But first of all, the thing is, congratulations for being honest and real. And just because that's where we are right now doesn't mean that's where we have to be tomorrow or next week or even next year. Because this is the thing, and this is the secret to all of this. This is what we have been stressing in this entire series. Because it's not about us and us willing ourselves and getting self-help and trying to do all of this kind of stuff. But rather, the most important thing that we can do throughout all of this is to lean into Jesus, is to be connected with him every single day through reading and studying the scriptures, through prayer, through journaling, through being connected in community, and the list goes on and on and on. Because this is the thing that happens, is that when we are connected to him, he will transform not just part of who we are, not just sections of our life, but he will transform all of who we are. And oftentimes we won't even know it. And so as we lean into him today, and as we lean into him tomorrow, and as we just do this over and over again, he'll give us steps to take. But also the extraordinary thing is, is that when we look back a month from now, a year from now, we're gonna be so surprised by all the work that he's done. And that's the secret to all of this. And so if we want to have these qualities in our life more and more, that we would be this type of community, not necessarily someone, people who rely on ourselves, but rely upon the only one who is able to provide and to actually create lasting transformation in our lives. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your extraordinary love for us. And I thank you, Lord, that this is the life that you desire for us to live. Lord, not where we're chasing after all of this stuff, Lord, but where we're leaning into you every moment, Lord, and just on a daily basis, Lord, recognizing that we need you. And when we actually do this, you're able to do something in our lives that we can't, which is to produce this fruit, Lord, that not only benefits us, but also creates beauty in the lives of the people around us and in this world, Lord. And I recognize, God, that this is what we do. We all desire this, Lord, whether we follow you or not. We recognize that this is the best way to live, Lord. And so for every single one of us, show us the next step to take because it's not about 10 steps down the road, but the next step as to how we can connect with you. 
We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to do exactly that. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.